Church, you can be seated. Good morning. Good morning, church. My name is Shane. I'm one of the pastors here. Just wanted to say thank you. I'm so glad that you're here worshiping Jesus with me this morning. As I was singing praises, um, my heart is so moved by just hearing the voices of other people, men and women who have been given a gift of faith, who are singing the same truths to their heart and to mine. And so I'm so glad that you are gathered here with us this morning in person. Um, as a local church, we want to follow God's commands. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others as ourselves. And often as a local church, one way that we walk in loving others the way we would want ourselves loved is to partner with local organizations and ministries and so this morning, church, I just want to invite Danielle Engel from One Blood to come up here and just speak about an opportunity for us to partner with them and love others. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name's Danielle. I am with One Blood and the Big Red Bus. Um, I'm so excited that we are able to partner with you all to have a blood drive next Sunday after service. Um, I know it says we start at 11, but come after service. <laughs> um, we unfortunately are very much struggling to keep up with local hospital needs. Um, so donations have been drastically dipped since COVID um, and we 100% depend on the community to supply the local hospitals. Um, so we supply South Seminole Hospital, Advent Health, ORMC, um, anything that's donated will go here locally. Um, everybody has the opportunity to save three lives. One person can save three lives. Um, you'll get a $20 e-gift card. You could use that at Walmart, Target, Amazon, a bunch of places, um, and a t-shirt. And donating blood is so important. If you've never thought about it, or if you have thought about it and you've never done it, this is your opportunity. Um, my mom had cancer for the majority of my childhood, and thankfully, with the generosity of blood donors, I was able to get a lot of extra time with her. Um, and unfortunately, my dad has cancer now, so he will likely need blood transfusions. Um, so not only will you potentially save somebody's life, but you'll change the family's lives as well, um, give them more time with their loved ones. Um, so I'm gonna be in the lobby today after service to get signups, um, I'll be at a table. Um, please come see me if you have any questions or anything, um, we would really appreciate it. And I will gladly report um, back to the church after the drive is over to let you all know how many lives you saved. Um, so we hope to see you soon and please come see me today after church. <laughs> awesome, thank you, Danielle. Church, you hear, hear the, the call that donating blood could save three lives. And you go, man, maybe I'll do that. And then you find a $20 gift card and you say, I'm definitely doing that. <laughs> so church, I just want to encourage you, if it's on your heart, uh, pray about it, consider it, and see Daniel after the service. Um, at this moment in our service, uh, we dismiss what's called Bridge 46. That's for fourth and sixth grade. If this is your first time here and you have a child in that age range. We just want you to know that they have a service of their own at this point in the service, a, a message and time together, uh, and they will be gathered back into the service during the last song of our service today. So they're going to head out up the ramp now.
So, church, if you have a Bible, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. That is where our message will be this morning. Last week, we were charged by Chris to consider what testimony God has for us to share. That is how the gospel is changing our life, how it's making a difference and doing something, and, and the opportunities we get to bring that up, those stories, and share it with others. Our passage today is looking at what is changing us. What is it exactly that is changing us as Christians? Our passage today has two stories, two trips, and on the surface, these stories from so long ago can seem irrelevant to us this morning. But let's trust God's word. Paul is concerned deeply about preserving a truth, the truth. And he's convinced that if we lose this truth, then we have absolutely nothing. So church, let's lean in because the truth that motivates Paul is the truth that motivates us this morning. This letter is written to a church in Galatia because there's a group of teachers, and I use air quotes on purpose, who have come that are proclaiming a different gospel than Paul. It seems that these false brothers, as Paul will call them in our passage, claimed a connection to the church in Jerusalem, and they had a high view of Peter, James the brother of Jesus, and John. What did they teach that was so upsetting to Paul? It appears that they were teaching that the new Gentile Christians— after professing faith in Jesus, needed now to observe the Mosaic laws, including the ceremonial laws, maybe even mostly the ceremonial laws, if they wanted to be saved. That could include being circumcised, ritual washings, festivals, and other stuff. But as Chris has said over the past two weeks again and again, the gospel of Jesus plus something else is not the gospel. So the gospel plus something, is not more than the gospel. It's not the gospel. That is the backdrop of this letter and of this chapter this morning. So with that, let me read Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. We should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's been 14 years, either from the three years mentioned in the previous chapter or 14 years from Paul's conversion. Either way, it has been quite some time. What Paul has been doing during those years, what has he been up to? It appears that he's been studying the scriptures, praying, 
and proclaiming the good news of Jesus amongst the Gentiles. And it looks like this ministry has been taking place around Antioch. I want to pick up the thread from last week that Chris spoke about when he was encouraging us to consider our testimony. That is how God's working in our lives today. I find encouragement in, these, in this thought. See, God worked in miraculous moments. God works in miraculous moments. Even today, God worked in Paul in miraculous ways, like his conversion. He was on the road to Damascus to persecute the church, and God blinded him. That's miraculous. And a voice was heard, and he conf was confronted by Jesus himself. God works in the miraculous. But God also works in the ordinary and mundane. The 14 years that Paul was reading scripture, praying, it was not wasted in God's hands at all. You know, honestly, brothers and sisters, there's nothing ordinary about someone putting to death their sinful flesh. There's nothing ordinary about growing in love for God. There's nothing ordinary about walking humbly with him. It's supernatural. So church, can I just encourage you this morning, don't despise the ordinary days of your life. If you are trying to walk with Jesus, if you're trying to walk in step with the Spirit, those days are not wasted away. Back to our passage, a good question asked this morning when encountering a story in a passage is, why is Paul recounting this story? Remember how I said the false teachers claimed a connection to Jerusalem and had a high view of the Jerusalem apostles? In this story, Paul does the most having your cake and eating it too move. I'll explain it. I hope it doesn't get lost. Paul begins the story by pointing out that he, Titus, and Barnabas were not summoned to Jerusalem. Instead, Paul says, we went because of a revelation. So it wasn't the uh, apostles in Jerusalem didn't summon him there for a council. God set up this trip. We don't know how that revelation came, whether it's through prophecy or through uh, prayer or vision, but it happened. He arrives and he seems to initiate on his own a private conversation with those who seemed influential. This is the having your cake moment. Three times in this passage, he makes what can seem like a dismissive statement regarding the apostles in Jerusalem. That's Peter, and in the passage his name is Cephas. James, the brother of Jesus, and John. He says that they seemed influential, but then he quickly says, whatever they are does not matter to me. Why is Paul doing this? He isn't belittling his brothers. He isn't belittling the apostles. The false teachers have an oversized view of Jerusalem apostles, whose ministry was primarily to the Jewish nation. So they argued, these false teachers, that since the gospel message that Peter, John, and James are proclaiming came from a promise to Israel through a Jewish Savior taught through Jewish apostles in Jerusalem, then any Gentiles who believed needed to become more Jewish. We can see that in a weird, incomplete sentence that Paul interjects into our passage this morning in verses 3 through 5. It appears that some of the false brothers tried to have Titus, a Greek, circumcised while he was in Jerusalem. Talk about a weird turn to your vacation, right? If Paul invites you along, you go, yeah, I would love to go to Jerusalem. I, I love the Lord. And you, you go, and then people are like, hey, you should be circumcised. Let's do it. They do not give in for a moment. Why? 
Paul says he didn't yield to these men so that the truth of the gospel could be preserved. What does that mean? If they had circumcised Titus, it would have appeared that faith in Jesus was not enough. That we need to add additional things for our salvation. So Paul does not yield for a moment. Verse 6 picks up with a private, the private conversation amongst the apostles. This isn't a battle of the apostles or Paul trying to undermine them. Paul has already called them apostles in Galatians chapter 1. So when Paul says to those who seemed influential, he's only emphasizing that God shows no partiality. And the whole point of this story is that there is only one gospel message, and that message is more important than any teacher or apostle. There's only one message. The truth is the truth. And it doesn't matter how influential someone appears. If they're not speaking the truth, you do not listen to them. That is the meaning of this story. So, what is the eating his cake moment? It's this. Paul lays out the gospel to those who in, the, in Jerusalem seemed influential. He, he lays out the gospel that he's been reclaiming to the Gentiles for years now. And these people, who he doesn't care if they're influential or not, affirm the message and ministry he has with the Gentiles. So Paul basically says this. They seemed influential. Not that I care. Oh, by the way, they said I was right. That's having your cake and eating it too. Now, obviously, I'm poking fun at Paul, but this is huge. Like, this is a huge historic moment. And, and I never see this on a timeline when someone's mapping out history in a homeschooling. Right? But this moment is significant. Why? Because Paul had been proclaiming a gospel, the good news of Jesus, to Gentiles. And he had not consulted with the apostles in Jerusalem. And after years, he shows up there, and they both agree that the message Paul received from God is the same message they've been proclaiming to the Jews. Why is that important? Because the gospel we have today is not something that was formed in a clever marketing meeting. The Jerusalem apostles didn't gather together with Paul and say, what's the most palatable message we can proclaim? What, what can we do to really get people going? How can we energize the crowds? How can we bring them in? No, what they proclaim is a message from God. If you hear a message that someone has made themselves, you have full permission to disregard it. But a message from God is truth. And there's only one gospel, which means there's only one way to be right with God. These men believe that gospel, and they would not compromise it at all. Church, there are so many ways, so many issues that, that are secondary issues that we have to wrestle through. Ones that, that Scripture speaks around, and, and we wrestle to come together on something. There are churches down the road uh, that have different views of baptism. There are things that we should be flexible on with one another in fellowship. But this message here, we must be firm. The gospel message, the truth of the gospel, we must preserve it. Do you know that truth? Think of your life. Is there a truth that you're willing not to bend on at all? Let's pick up in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Some time has passed now. We know how long it's been, but now it's Peter's turn for a trip, and he's traveled to Antioch. This is Paul's home church. It's the center of missions to the Gentiles. Now, we can gather from our passage that Peter's been there for a while because he's having table fellowship with the Gentiles. He, he, he gathers and has meals with them, something that uh, someone strictly obeying the ceremonial Jewish laws would not be able to do, which means that Peter must have already had the vision he received in Acts chapter 10 when a sheet descended from heaven and there were ceremonially unclean animals on it and a voice from heaven said rise peter kill and eat he follows that up by a trip to see gentiles filled with the holy spirit professing the name of jesus so he is eating with gentile believers but suddenly some men come from james now we know in a similar event in acts chapter 15 that there were some who came and said, we're from James, implying that they had authority from Jerusalem. And it was found out that they were liars. And it seems likely that's what's happening here. They came to Antioch, and they caused a divide. Peter, seeing them and fearing the circumcision party, those who would say you need to be circumcised to truly be saved, he separates himself from the Gentile Christians. The other Jewish Christians see Peter's example, so they too separate, including Barnabas. Why does this matter? Well, if there is one gospel, there can't be two tables. Jesus did not come and die to create a divided church. The gospel doesn't save us into two camps. It saves us into his camp. So Peter, although affirming the truth with his words, is now acting like it isn't true with his actions. Verse 14 says their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Which means there's a way to corrupt the message of the gospel just as much with our actions as we can with our words. See, Peter extended the right hand of fellowship in Jerusalem, but now he's retracting it from his Gentile brothers and sisters. So Paul, in front of everyone, confronts Peter by saying, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Again, is this a clash of the apostles? No, I don't think so. See, I don't think this is as much as, as Peter being confronted by Paul as it is Peter being confronted by the truth of the gospel. I'll pick up in the following verses the content of Paul's rebuke, but let me ask the obvious question. How does Peter respond to this correction? We don't know in the moment. We read the passage, it doesn't tell us. But years later, Peter will pen these words in his final letter before he is crucified for the truth of the gospel. And the opening of his letter reads like this. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Do you hear it? It's not gospel plus something else. It's just faith in Jesus. That is what Peter died for. It was a truth that he would not compromise. And when he was out of step with it, he repented. And he proclaims it again, the truth. Picking back up Paul's public rebuke, we find that this uh, is the truth we've been dancing around this entire sermon. What is the one gospel? What is worth standing up for? What is the truth that must be preserved? What is the truth that our conduct must be in step with? We see it in verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews. This is Paul speaking to Peter in front of everyone. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul states the truth of the gospel three times here with different emphases. He uses the word justification. He uses it over and over again, which means to be found innocent or in scripture, found righteous before God. And he states three different ways. He says, first, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a statement of truth and knowledge. He's saying we know this truth. Second, he says, so we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. This is a statement of experience. He says, we know the truth and we believe the truth and experienced it in our lives. And third, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is an amplified quotation of Psalm 143, verse 2. A statement of truth from truth. The word of God. So Paul is saying we know this, we believed it and have experienced this, and it's in scripture and testified to by the truth of God. So why is he saying this? He's bringing three witnesses of truth to Peter, and he's saying, Peter, this is not something we're unsure of. You and I, we know this. This isn't something flimsy. This is something solid. This is what our lives are built upon. This is the ground of which we must be firm. Faith in Jesus alone saves. We know. I want to focus on that first statement, that statement of knowledge and truth. We know those two words. How opposed are those words today in our culture? In a postmodern, post-Christian culture where there is no such thing as truth, we are being trained to believe it is arrogant to say the words we know. Brothers and sisters, no one will be saved except through faith in Jesus. We know this. We know this. That's not an arrogant statement. It's not arrogant because it has nothing to do with us, does it? We, you, you weren't so smart that you discovered the gospel. You weren't so righteous that you earned it. You weren't such a talented or gifted individual. God looked at you and said, I just need them on my team. No, the only thing we bring to the gospel is our need for salvation. 
So it's not arrogant to say we know because what we know has been revealed by God himself. It is truth. The gospel truth isn't arrogant. The false gospel is. So what do we do with this truth? We should be firm on the truth and gentle with people. You know, church, I wonder sometimes if a lie has gotten its way into our hearts that to be firm on truth means to be brash, to kind of just state the truth and like a mic drop, walk away. We're called to more than that. I say that because in the verses we just looked at, we're told that our actions must be in step with the gospel of truth. So we must also walk what we are proclaiming before the people that we're proclaiming it to. Now in this passage, Paul lays out two supposed ways here for salvation. One of works of the law and one by faith in Christ alone. Now we might be tempted today to think that no one in the world today is really arguing for righteousness through the law. But the heart of this false gospel is alive in the church and in the world around us. In the church, it comes out whenever we want to add something to the gospel. I find this pull in my own heart. If you're a real Christian, then you will vote for this candidate. Those who are saved speak in tongues or prophesy. If you're really a follower of Christ, you'd be far more concerned or upset about this particular issue. If you're a true follower of Christ, your kids will be homeschooled or public schooled or private. I don't know if you're saved if you dress like that or watch that show or drink that. The trouble with these statements is that they usually start from a place of wanting to honor God. And they can have reasoning that has its roots in wisdom. Because should our faith impact how we think about politics and schooling? Yes. Should it have an effect on, on what we wear, we drink, and we eat, and how we joke? Absolutely. Do we want to strive for gifts of the Spirit? Yes, all of these things, all of them. But when this wisdom gets out of line, when it steps across the threshold into a gospel statement, when it makes a claim on whether you are saved or not, it becomes something grotesque. At the heart of it, it implies that we have some part to play in our salvation. That, that, that God needs us to add just a little to the death of his son. This is arrogant. Church, the simple message we have, the one we must have preserved, the truth that we must be in step with is this. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. Don't step away from the truth of the gospel. Plant your feet here. Find this solid ground and build your life upon it. Now, I said the heart of the false gospel is alive in our world today. How can that be when the world often denies that God exists altogether? A few be weeks back, I was at a secular concert. The main act was made up of two lesbian women. They are immensely talented musicians. And by God's common grace, their music is both beautiful and heartbreaking at times. If I had to guess the audience, I would say the vast majority of the room was people from the LGBT plus community. 
In the opening act was another lesbian woman who spoke about her father's church growing up. She said they used to do something called call and response. She led the room in what I would describe as a worship song, where she would sing a line, and then the entire room would sing it back over and over with her. People stood up, and they raised their arms. And they sung back with her lines like, I have a healing inside me. I have a longing for justice. I have a yearning for safety. I am a self-sovereign human. I claim the space for my grieving. I'm awake to my journey. And I have a healing inside me. They sung that last line over and over again. It's been echoing in my head ever since. And as I stood there that night, I started to cry. And I had two thoughts. The church is beautiful. Even in a culture that is increasingly hostile and suspicious of the ch church, there is still a longing for the beauty that's found when we gather together. See, with hands raised high and a worship song being sung, that room turned into a counterfeit image of the church, but one without the good news. It turned into a counterfeit image of the church, but one without the very reason we gather. What were they singing? The heart of the gospel by works. Now, I don't want it to be a distraction that I say as the LGBT community, this is not unique to this community. This is throughout our entire culture today. There is a false gospel being proclaimed on every TV show we watch and the songs we listen to, from our Disney princesses to whoever is singing on the radio today. It's a belief that our biggest problem comes from outside ourselves. It comes from others. And our hope for salvation, our only hope for salvation, is inside ourselves. If you're just true enough to yourself, if you just reach in deep enough, if you just be authentic enough, you can rise against the oppression outside of you and you can save yourself. But the gospel of Jesus, the truth in Scripture, is this. Our biggest problem is inside ourselves. And our only hope for salvation comes from one who's outside of ourselves. We need a Savior. And we cannot save ourselves. This is what happened that night, I think, at the concert. The truth of the gospel has a fruit that is beautiful. We can take it for granted in the church. It's the community around you. It's the practice of worship. It's communal singing. And the world yearns for that beauty, but they want that beauty without the truth. Which led me to my second thought. This is Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, 
do you see the crowds like Jesus does? Do you have compassion on them? We must go to them. And I don't think a well-crafted social media post will be enough. I was out last night with members of our church at Crane's Roost, and, and we were just doing street evangelism. I was walking with Caleb Stafford, and, and we would just approach people and ask a few questions that try to lead into a conversation about beliefs, and then we would share ours. Church, I think that that is one piece of the picture of how we reach a lost world around us. Because there are people who just need to be reminded that the truth is the truth and someone cares enough about them to share it that day. And there are some people who don't know how to be saved and they need someone to come up to them and talk about it. But I don't think that's the whole picture of how we reach the world around us. Church, we, we can't make people believe. We can't make people believe, but doesn't love compel us to go to them and proclaim it anyways? This is what I think we need. I think we need men and women to go to the world and show them that the things that they are yearning for, we have them through relationship with Jesus alone. I think we need to live our lives with people who are lost. To invite them out to watch sporting events or enter our homes to have a meal, to eat lunch with them in our office spaces, to do life with them, to enjoy them and talk to them so that when there are moments in your life, believer, that you need safety and they see that moment, they realize that you call safety Jesus and he is your stronghold and refuge. When they look at you and they see the moments in your life when you crave for justice, they see that you believe in a God who will avenge every wrongdoing thing and he will set everything right. When they look at your life and they see the pull that you're putting to death in yourself to be a self-sovereign human, and instead they see a joy and peace in your life when you bow down to the sovereign one. Or church... When you need a healing, whether it's physical or relational or, or just a brokenness that's in this world, and, and they see you struggling with something, they see that you will say, you will acknowledge, you don't have a healing inside yourself. You have the healer inside yourself. The Holy Spirit has been given to you through faith in Jesus alone. See, I don't think what they need is someone to come and just correct their language and articulate it differently. I think they need to see that the beauty they long for so much doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of Jesus alone. Church, would we go to the world and proclaim a truth with our words faithfully and with our lives? Let me conclude with what I might think, uh, I think might be the most stunning verses on union with Christ and probably the center of the book of Galatians. It's verse 17 through 21. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. 
is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here we find an accusation. The Judaizers, those who were arguing for adding to the gospel for Gentiles, Here's an accusation they made against the gospel that Paul preached. And you might have had the same accusation rising up in your mind earlier when I was talking about the ways we add to the gospel in the church. If it's just by faith, then won't people live immoral lives? See, if it's just by faith, won't people take advantage of that and live licentious and and, and evil lives? You know, justification usually gets presented as only legal language. And that's because it is legal language. It's to be justified. It's like courtroom language. But, you know, we present it almost as if it's a matter of paperwork in a heavenly bureaucracy. But the justification that we see in Scripture is visceral. It's a matter of blood and flesh. The opponents argue that faith, just believing, will lead to immoral lives. But that's not what the believing we're called to, is it? Listen, intellectual assent that Jesus existed and you need him is not saving faith. The faith Paul is talking about, the knowing Paul is talking about, it's, it's one that leads to your death. We die. Can I have permission to say some scandalous things right now? Yeah? Our union with Christ is so inseparable that when Christ died on the cross, we died with him. Meaning that our old selves, our sinful nature, is crucified with Christ. Brother, sister, if you believe in Jesus, you follow him, you have died already. Now, we often talk about two thieves on the cross with Jesus, but we might as well say there were three, because there were two on the sides, but on that center cross where Jesus hung, you were hung also. Not just that we share in Jesus' death but we share in his life and righteousness as if it was ours too. Every good thing Jesus ever did has been accounted to you. Feeding the 5,000, healing the lepers, resisting Satan in the desert, obeying the Father every moment of every day, that is yours. The Father looks at you and he sees that. That's scandalous enough, right? That's incredible. I mean, the truth this morning is this. Whether you sin this morning or not, if you are in Christ, God will never love you any less or any more than he loves you this moment. Because the full force of the Father's love is upon you. And he looks at you, and he constantly sees the blood of his Son, his righteousness upon you. Church, you're radiant. That's scandalous enough, but But I'm not done because the most startling words of union with Christ is this. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How? How can that be true? Because not only have you died with Christ, not only is his life yours, but his resurrection life is yours. When you died with Jesus, your life wasn't over because Jesus got out of that tomb again. And he, through the Holy Spirit, is living inside of you. That's true of you, brother. 
Sister, that's true of you. When Paul makes this statement, it's not something only the Apostle Paul can make. Like, it might be healthy for us this morning to even just say out loud to ourselves, it's no longer I who live, but Jesus lives in me. That's true of you. It's not for some group of Christians. That's followers of Christ. That's the faith of equal standing that Peter talks about, the the equal standing of righteousness through Jesus. Wow, that's the gospel. Now, does that kind of justification, does that gospel make you sit here and think today, man, I want to sin so much. Does it make you hear, you hear union with Christ, you hear of your, your death with him on the cross, how he died in your place, how, how his life is accredited to you, and how he is alive in you today. Does that good news make you think, man, I wonder what I can get away with? No. No. No, because those who are saved by faith in Jesus, it creates in us a desire to put to death our sin. I want to honor him. I want to glorify him. I want to lift Jesus up. We're not perfect, though, are we? We have a new self in Christ, and it's changing. So one of the ways that we keep in step with the truth of the gospel today is to fight to put to death our sins and walk in the righteousness of Jesus. When we fail and do sin, praise God we have an advocate in heaven. Jesus. God rushes towards us, not away from us. So we are commending the truth of the gospel by putting to death our sins and vivifying, that is, bringing to life the fruits of the Spirit. We are looking more and more like Jesus as we hold fast to the truth. I once heard someone say, the righteousness of Jesus is like receiving hand-me-downs from your older star athlete brother. They're yours, but they're really baggy and large on you. They don't quite fit right yet. They might be baggy, but you're growing into them. How do we land this morning? Church, we need to make sure we know the truth. And we need to fight all the distractions that want to add to the truth. And we need to make sure we hold fast that it's by faith alone in Jesus that saves. Because we can look at a world and look at their false gospel and say, that that is so messed up. But church, I want to be very clear, a false gospel in the church saves exactly as many people as a false gospel in the world. Zero. So hold fast to this truth. Are you willing to, like Paul, preserve that truth? Walk in step with that truth. Defend it, cherish it, and proclaim it. As I come to a close, can I, as Danny says at times, meddle before I close? 
Well, I've always wanted to try it. He's always up here rubbing his hands. I'm going to meddle. I want to give it a shot one time. So I was preparing this, this sermon. I, I feel like the Lord put an exhortation on my heart. Now, this particular exhortation, it's to the men of our church. That doesn't mean that this is nothing to say to the women that are here, but I just want to be faithful to what the Lord has been stirring on my heart this week. Now, a good exhortation, it calls people up to something, not, not to their level. A good exhortation calls us up to Scripture. Often, when heard, a good exhortation can bring encouragement to some. But to others, it can challenge and convict us. It's not meant to be heard as a blanket statement, but a calling up that meets each of us where we are. Now, I don't want to be the kind of pastor that exhorts his church without loving his church. And so, I hope that through relationship, I hope through my life, I hope through friendships in this room, I've shown you that I love you deeply. And if I've ever done the opposite, would you please forgive me? Would you please come to me and tell me so that I can repent and ask for your forgiveness? If you're a guest this morning, you don't know me personally at all, can I just ask you to be gracious with me? What I'm about to say, can you receive it with a generous heart, assuming the best? Because God has been working on my heart this week. He's been convicting me. My exhortation this morning starts with a question. Where are the men of truth at Metro Life? Where are the men who know the truth of Jesus? Men of God who will preserve it, walk in it, defend it, live in it, and die for the truth of the gospel. Others, can I call us up to something? Call us up together? We have just spent time looking at the truth that we don't save ourselves and concluded with the scandalous truth that we are united to Jesus. Change doesn't save us, but being saved changes us. To older men of faith who I admire and look up to, men who I literally stand on the shoulders of the church you built, Don't give up. God is not done with you yet, brother. This church, this world, your family, they need you. Press on. Younger men with families, let's build a community around the truth that our children will see as beautiful. One where their dads confessed their sins and walked life with others. Let's lead ourselves and then lead our family. Men, let's stop being on autopilot and allowing our wives to carry a spiritual weight that we should shoulder. Lead in your home. Young single men, be animated by the truth of the gospel and take big risks for God's glory. Men of Metro, don't let the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life take your eyes off the truth. Don't let your, your stock options be where your eyes set your hope. 
Don't let it be the distractions in this world that so easily grab a hold of our affections. Place them on Christ again this morning. Will we go and see that the harvest is plentiful? And we ask pray for workers to go, but would we acknowledge this morning that we are the workers who should go too? Let's repent from not loving the truth of God. Let's pick up our Bibles once again and cultivate a love for the words of God. Let's be men of prayer. Let's cry out together. Let's cry out for our co-workers, our children, our friends, our family, and ourselves. I'm ending with an exhortation because we're about to go into worship and we'll take communion together in just a moment. And I don't know what to expect this morning. As I prayed and as I prepared, I just knew that the Lord put on my heart to humble myself and to call men to humble themselves too. And so men, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk off the stage and I'm going to kneel right at that step and I'm going to cry out my heart to Jesus. And I'm not praying to be saved this morning. Jesus has already saved me. But I'm going to pray and recommit my life to my Savior. I'm going to lay it out before him. And men, if the Lord is stirring your heart at all, can I call you up to something? Would you come join me on these steps and cry out to Jesus with me? Because I don't want to leave a sermon like this unchanged. I want the truth of the gospel that I plant my feet on to be where I stand for the rest of my life. Church, let's respond in faith and worship our Lord before we take communion.